Well, we are continuing in our uh, All for One series in the book of Ephesians. And as we're doing this, I'm reading through this passage and, and uh, we'll be looking at, at the second half of what I read, verses 15 to 20. As I mentioned last week, this really is one pericope, one, one unit of thought. And as we're building this out, throughout this letter, we see the context that Paul is setting forth for us. Now, remember, he's not writing this to us. He's writing this to the first century church in and around Ephesus in, in a city filled with prosperity and the, the, the chasm, the wealth gap that inevitably comes when there is prosperity. There are certainly those who are outside of that prosperity. Additionally, there's rampant immorality and paganism. In this pagan culture, part of their natural worship involves the slaking of their own physical lusts. The great temple of Artemis or Diana is present here in Ephesus, and the worship of this so-called goddess involved all manner of immorality and debauchery. In this, if you will, new normal that they were experiencing, Paul calls them to something else. But understand, he's not calling the Ephesian church, nor is God calling us, to a mere flat religious behaviorism. But a new identity, a change fundamentally in who and what we are because of Christ's substitutionary death in our place. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. John 1.12 tells us that as many as receive him, take on the Son, take in the Son by faith. When you have trusted that he is who he says he is, and that his death and resurrection does what he says it does and pays for all of our sins, John 1.12 tells us that he gives us the right to become children of God. Now it's inevitable in a group this size, and, and especially with those who may be uh, participating online, that there are those among us who are not actually children of God, who have not received Christ by faith. It is my prayer that as you hear God's word preached to you today, that your heart would be crushed and convicted, as is the case with every single person who ever comes to Christ. There must be the conviction of sin before there can be the apprehension of grace. And until we recognize that we are in ourselves darkened, even, as Paul says here, darkness, empty, devoid of God's glory, then the offer of grace in Christ is meaningless. Until we know that God's not kidding about judgment and hell, then the good news of his offering mercy means little. If you have not come to recognize who Jesus is 
and to set your heart on Him, then I pray today that the Holy Spirit would take hold of you so that you can see and turn and live. If you have come to that place and you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, well then, let's get to work. Let's make the most of every opportunity in these times in which we live. Let's not prioritize the things of this world, but rather, let's find out what God wants from us and do that. And if you are in Christ and you have not yet declared that publicly through baptism, that's your first step. It's what he says to do. That's the example of Christ. It's the pattern of the New Testament. It's not some magical ceremony that makes you holy. Rather, when you have been brought from death to life, Jesus Christ himself ordained this ceremony for you to declare to the world that you have died and been buried with him and been raised to a new life in him. And in so doing, it's kind of like a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony, where you are identified with Christ and joined to his body, the church. If that is something that is on your heart today, then please, by all means, let me know afterwards. And if you have not given yourself to Christ, you've not received him by faith, and the Lord is speaking to you today, then by all means, come and talk to me. I'd love nothing more than to introduce you to him, my Lord and my best friend. Your life depends on it. That said, I was driving home from Bridgman on Red Arrow Highway on Thursday night, just after dark. We, uh, the softball team played the late game, and so several of us got together over at Scoops for some Hudsonville ice cream and fellowship. Say amen if you know fellowship's always better with ice cream, right? Personally, I had a single scoop of Michigan pothole, which is a triple chocolate in a waffle cone. And I felt particularly spiritually fulfilled in that moment. I probably hadn't gone a mile when, when I left when all of a sudden, in the darkness, I came right up on a, a, a bike rider on Red Arrow Highway in the dark, wearing dark clothes with no reflectors on the bike. I'm sure that they were scared to death because my heart was beating out of my chest, and I was in the car, and they were on the bike. I never even saw them. Because in the darkness, there was no contrast between the dark clothes that they were wearing and the darkness all around them. Now, if this rider had been wearing light-colored clothes, then when the headlights of my car hit them, or if they'd had reflectors on their bike, then when the headlights of my car hit them, they would have been illuminated and I would have seen them. But instead, he just blended in. The contrast between light and darkness is absolutely critical. Whether you're 
whether you're talking about riding a bike in the dark or you're talking about, as Paul says to the Ephesians here, our walk in Christ, the Christian lifestyle. Paul uses this idea of contrast to bring today's core reality to the front. Here's that core reality. The wise do not live for temporary things, but for God's eternal purpose. The wise do not live for temporary things, but for God's eternal purpose. Now, as Paul is bringing this out, and he's, he's talking about this contrast idea, uh, we need to understand that the contrast in our identity brings a contrast in our living. Okay, The contrast in our identity brings about a contrast in our living. In other words, as he's saying, we, we used to be one thing and now we're something else, but it's not like it's some slight change. We used to be darkness and now we are light. These are, if I can use the term, opposites. They are antithetical to one another, related but dramatically different. Light is the presence of this visible energy, Darkness is the absence of it. Light and darkness cannot coexist. It's not possible. The contrast is huge. And that's what Paul wants us to see in this section, is that there is a difference between who you were in the flesh, who you were when you were just like everybody else in the world, blending in like a rider in the dark wearing dark clothes. Because that's who you were. But in Christ, because Jesus died in my place and yours, and he rose from, from the grave, demonstrating that the sacrifice had been accepted, all who receive him don't have to perish, but receive eternal life through him. Our identity changes. He goes to great lengths in chapters 1 and 2 to establish that. And also in chapter 3, he shows kind of the repercussions of that. Because of the great, unspeakable love of Christ, God, in His sovereignty, chose us before the creation of the world, adopted us as His children, and set us, despite our sinfulness, into the same standing as the only begotten Son. That's the first century picture of adoption that is here. You're not some outsider who happens to live in the same home. You are a son, a daughter of the living God with the full status and rights of the only begotten Son of God. If that's not mind-blowing, then you may be comatose. This is the hugest thing imaginable. The holy God has made unholy people to be holy. Christ laid down his life for sinners so that we sinners can become his saints, his holy ones, set apart for him. This is powerful reality. In chapter 2, he points out that all of us were just like the rest of the world. 
children of wrath, objects of wrath, deserving of God's judgment. We were dead in our sin. But God, in His great mercy, because of the great love that He has for us, His image bearers, He brought us from death to life in Christ. This is why he can say, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter what your human earthly divisions are. How silly to think that skin color matters, or your background matters, or your economic status matters, or your education matters. How pointless and futile and empty and dark and earthbound. What matters is, are you dead or alive? Are you in Christ? Or are you still living according to the flesh? For those who have been raised from death to life, he says here in chapter 5, you were once darkness. That's who you were. When you were darkness, you did what darkness does. Empty nothingness. The life you lived was and if you are still in that state, is pointless, hopeless, and absolutely worthy of despair. That's a real upper for the sermon, huh? <laughs> but I'd be lying if I told you anything else. Hope, real hope, and real life are found in Jesus Christ. Not in cleaning up your act. There's nothing in this letter that Paul is writing, nor anywhere else in the scriptures. And if you think you find it, come and talk to me and we'll square it up. There is nothing that will tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you just live a better life, everything's good. If you just stop doing the dumb stuff, right? Stop, stop drinking and smoking and cussing and gambling and you know running around stop doing all that stuff stop eating fatty cheeseburgers stop yeah i'm talking to you eat a salad once in a while right exercise take care of yourself pay your bills be responsible stop stealing if you do all these things then god will accept you because doggone it you're good enough and smart enough and people like you that is not the Bible. That's Saturday Night Live. I don't know about you, but I don't want to base my life on Saturday Night Live. I want to know the truth of God's Word. And what God's Word says is all have sinned and fall short of His glory. And the wages of falling short of His glory is death. Eternal separation from Him. Which Jesus Himself described as a burning fire. So while it might seem kind of like a downer for me to tell you this, I tell you because I love you. You have hope in Jesus Christ alone because of God's grace to you alone. And you receive it through faith alone, not by your works. And faith not in religion, not in a church, but in Jesus Christ alone. 
all of these things after the praise of His glorious grace to the glory of God alone. If you have received Him by faith, you've been changed. There's a contrast between who you were and who you are. And because there's a contrast in your identity, it naturally, logically brings about a contrast in your living, in your lifestyle, in your approach to doing life daily, moment by moment. You can't, if you are now light, live like you are still darkness. Because light and darkness can't abide together. There's no harmony between Christ and the devil. There is no partnership, no fellowship between darkness and light. If you are right now calling yourself a Christian and you are comfortable in your sin and your approach is, yeah, you know, God knows I'm doing my best. It's all good. I want to tell you as clearly as I can if that is your heart, the Bible says without question that you are not a Christian. You're still darkness. If you are light, you can't be comfortable with that. Now, don't misunderstand every single one of us until we are home face to face with Jesus. We'll continue to stumble, right? Say amen if you stumbled this week. Man, I struggled just getting out of bed this morning, keeping my attitude right. Stumbling happens, but it no longer defines us. Sin is no longer who we are, and we cannot tolerate it in ourselves. If your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit, then when you fail, when you sin, it tears you apart inside. Not as those in darkness might fear the consequences of the sin, someone will find out, I'll be exposed. But when no one else knows, and you can never get caught, you know that your sin breaks the heart of God. That's the heart of a Christ follower. I need to get back on track or we're never going to get done, so let's come back to this. The contrast in our identity brings a contrast in our living. First off, we see radiant light is contrasted with empty darkness. All right, we're looking at the contrast of radiant light versus empty darkness. Let's take a look at verses 8 to 14. Paul describes that change in us. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The logical extension of that comes in the imperative that follows. Live as children of light. Why would you do anything else? It's who you are. And then he describes what that looks like. For the fruit of the light, that which the light produces, consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. There's an effort involved. Because I have changed, my desires have changed, the way I think has changed, I want to know what pleases God. 
That means I want, I don't, I don't go to church because I'm checking a box. I don't go to church because I'm going to get guilted into it. The pastor's going to call me and, and make me feel bad. That's not it. I go to church because I want to be with God's people. I want to be encouraged by you, and I want to encourage you. I want to hear God's word preached to the congregation. I want to sing songs that speak to who he is. Because I want to know what God's will is. I want to look hard to try to find out what pleases the Lord. And I won't be satisfied with what I know today because I want to know more tomorrow. I'm going to find opportunities to read my Bible and to read with others and to study and to pray because I know that being born is only the beginning. There is growth that has to take place after that. Live as children of light. Find out what pleases the Lord. Then he gives the contrast. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Notice the difference. The fruit of the light and the fruitless deeds of darkness. The deeds of darkness are in the emptiness. The light produces its fruit. Rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. We parade it around in front of everybody in our culture because the days are evil. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That's why it's written, why it says, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The radiant light versus empty darkness. Notice our identity has changed. That's what Paul's saying here in the first portion. Our identity has changed. Paul's gone out of his way to establish that the gospel changes literally everything. And yes, daughter, that is the right way to use literally. Okay. Literally everything has changed. Starting with who we are, and as a result it changes how we live. The cause is our new birth in Christ. The effect is our sanctification, our being set apart for God and increasingly conformed to the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. He has already pointed out the reality that light is productive, right? The, the fruit of the light. And we recognize that from a scientific perspective. Light is energy. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is empty. Spiritually speaking, light is the manifestation of God's glory. Darkness is the absence of light, devoid of God's glory. See how he shows the contrast between the empty darkness and the flesh and radiant light of life controlled by the Spirit in Galatians 5, where he talks about the acts of the sinful nature in comparison with the fruit of the Spirit. When we are devoid of God's glory, when the darkness is defining us, then we have these empty, fruitless deeds. But when we are alive in the Spirit, the Spirit, the light, produces in us, from the source of God's glory, fruit, against which there is no law, because there is no darkness in that fruit. 
We'll come back to that later. There is a huge contrast here. In Christ, we've been changed from empty, lifeless darkness, devoid of God's glory, to radiant, productive, life-giving light, the very manifestation of God's glory in the world. Then notice the contrast between wise living versus evil days. Wise living versus evil days. Notice our worldview must change. Our worldview must change. In the text that we're going to be focusing primarily on here today, Paul says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Your translation may say the days are filled with evil. It's the idea. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wise living versus evil days. What Paul writes in verses 15 to 20 is the the outgrowth of what he's already said in verses 8 to 14. Because our nature has changed, our behavior, our thinking, our living must change. It's the logical outgrowth. If this, then this. Our old clothes no longer fit us because we're not the same people we once were. He outlines here this whole idea in four contrasts that we're going to be looking at. Contrast between life in Christ and the natural way of the world and the flesh, which is exactly the evil that the devil works to promote in us. All right, the contrast is between who we are in Christ and who we were in the world and in our flesh. That's why the days are filled with evil. Because when we are living according to our own conscience, follow your heart, as they like to say, then we're doing the same things that we read of in the book of Judges. A book of defeat and turning away from God. Where there is no king in Israel, and each one did what was right in his own eyes. When we do this, we are playing into the devil's hands. That's exactly what he wants. And what we see as natural to the flesh, God describes repeatedly, consistently, as evil and wicked. The wise view life through the lens of our identity in Christ through the gospel. So let's look at these four contrasts that describe wise living versus evil days. The first contrast we see is watchful wisdom versus careless folly. Watchful wisdom versus careless folly. Look at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. There's a lot of pictures of wisdom 
in the scriptures, and you might notice there's a pretty long list of references for you to use on your own time at your homework, but uh, I left out far more than I included. The entire book of Ecclesiastes, the entire book of Proverbs, pointing to this, that there is a wisdom, and it begins with the fear of the Lord. That's how we get there. And wisdom does not allow itself to get caught up in the foolishness of this world. To look at temporal things as if they are real and lasting and meaningful. The book of Ecclesiastes is written expressly for that purpose. Long before the mystery of Christ is is revealed, Solomon has already tried to live the life that makes sense in the flesh. He had the great reputation, all of the earthly wisdom. He had the wealth. He brought the nation to its greatest period of prosperity in history, unparalleled even to today. He had all the wine, women, and song you can imagine, and none of it meant anything. His description of it all, vanity, meaningless, like chasing after the wind. That's the entire purpose of the book. As children of light, our values must change. That's the difference between watchful wisdom, and careless folly. Our values must change. We need to begin to see things as God sees them. As children of light, we must be careful to be watchful how we live. In contrast to the folly of just walking through life unconcerned about anything but the things of this world, the natural, what it feels like is right what my heart, what my conscience tells me. This will lead us astray. Solomon writes in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to destruction. When we do our thing instead of God's thing, pursuing what seems right to us, we are participating in the careless folly of the world. As children of God, we must value what God values. We need to see past the veneer of the now to the substance of things, which the flesh cannot perceive. Solomon saw this having tried it all. The careless folly of living according to the flesh and the dictates of this natural world inevitably leads to stress to worry, to fear, to divided loyalties. When our identity is changed by Christ, then our values must change to reflect that. If you're still in Ephesians 5, turn the page to the right. We're going to jump over the book of Philippians to the book of Colossians. Just a couple of pages. Colossians chapter 3. St. 
same writer, Paul, to a different church around the same time. A lot of parallels in these two letters. Having established the supremacy of Christ and what that means to us in our lives, in chapter 3 he says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, stop wasting your time focusing on stuff here. Stop thinking about things from an earthly perspective. You're not that person anymore. You are not your flesh. You are not governed by the principles of this world. You are not dominated by the devil. You are defined by Christ. Therefore, raise your gaze. Set your minds on things above. Stop valuing the things that will pass over the things that will last for eternity. Begin to see things through his lens. And he goes on to tell them that they need to put together the thing, put to, put to death, not put together, put to death the things that belong to that old life. Things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. By its nature, that's idolatry. He says in verse 7, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Our values must change. When we begin to see Christ as most precious, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Paul continues, Therefore, as God's chosen people, in verse 12, holy and dearly loved, that is the nature of all who have received Christ by faith. You are dearly loved children. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He gives us the peace. We need to let it rule in us. We need to set our minds on it. Since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ, which is the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, dwell among you richly, abide in you, remain in you, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, 
And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. In Christ, our values must change. The wise understand the difference between what lasts and what is passing, and they are careful to value eternal things. Let me say that again. I don't want you to miss it. The wise understand the difference between what lasts and what is passing. And they are careful to value, to set their hearts on eternal things. Next, notice the contrast of maximizing opportunities versus wasting time. In verse 16, we see this. He's just said, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. If you have an older translation, it probably says, redeeming the time for the days are evil. The concept is the same. You're capturing it. You're taking it hostage. You are receiving it back. Take every opportunity to make the most, not to let it just wander around and, and we go through life and opportunities come and go and we're not really paying that much attention because we're too busy living in our careless folly. But instead, rather than wasting time on things that don't matter, recognize that which is important because our values have changed and maximize those opportunities. In other words, our priorities must change. When our values change to reflect the values of God, then our priorities change. Priorities have to do with ordering our agendas to reflect both importance and urgency. Importance is what has the most weight. Urgency is what is most timely. It has to happen now, right? So while uh, it might be important for me to save for retirement, if they're going to foreclose on my house today, that's more urgent. Right? That's, that's the difference. One is important. One is urgent. We've got to make sure that in our priorities, we're ordering things in our agenda according to the balance of both. That which is most important and most urgent. So we're talking about ordering our agendas to reflect both importance and urgency so that the things that matter most don't get pushed aside for the things that matter less. It's not that they don't matter. They just don't matter as much. Get the big rocks in first. Then the little rocks and the sand and the water. When Paul speaks here of redeeming the time or making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil... That's what he's saying. Prioritize. The times in which we live, both then and now, are filled with evil. They're dominated by the flesh. They're ruled by the devil. In Christ, we're not. There's a contrast between who we are now and the world around us. We were, past tense, part of this world around us. We were native-born citizens here. 
But we are now ambassadors for Christ, no longer citizens here, but citizens of heaven here on a mission. We need to make sure that we are setting our priorities in a way that reflects God's priorities. Our eyes have been opened to the reality of God's kingdom rule, and it changes what we see as most important and most urgent. We begin to prioritize the great commandment and the great commission. You don't have to turn there right now. It's in your notes there, so you can look this up on your own. But in Matthew 22, we see Jesus describing the greatest command. They think they're going to trip him up, but they forgot. He's Jesus, right? So that doesn't work. What's the greatest command, Jesus? Simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, money, time, everything you got. God first, nothing ahead of Him. He is your ultimate priority, period. By the way, there's a, there's a corollary to that. There's a, an ancillary command that is like it. He calls it the second. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, when you take care of yourself, you get hungry. Some of you are thinking, when's this sermon going to get over? I'm hungry now. When you get hungry, you eat. When you get cold, you put on a sweater or a blanket. When you get hot, you turn on the air conditioning or wish you had some. That's how you are to take care of your neighbor. When you see somebody hurting, handle it the same way you would handle your hunger. Take care of it. That's the great command. If we are in Christ, we start to see things through His values, and we start to prioritize things according to those values, and we live with a focus on this great command. Flowing out of that great command comes Christ's great commission. In Matthew 28, we see this, where He says, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, therefore, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, Go and make disciples. And as you're going to make these disciples, to bring them in, to teach them, identify them with my death and resurrection and body. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all of my commands, including this one. When we begin to prioritize as God prioritizes, and we recognize what's most important and most urgent, we see God as most important, and because of that, His love for others flows through us in that second command. And because His love flows through us, the same love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners, because God loved the world so much, he wanted to redeem us while we were his enemies. Then the natural thing for every Christ follower is to recognize that there is literally nothing, not one thing that compares in importance and urgency to glorifying God and bringing others who are in darkness into the light. We need to make disciples. 
we need to share the gospel out loud with words. But those words only matter when our lifestyle matches someone who has been changed from darkness to light. And if we don't have that light, and we're not showing that light, why would anybody want to listen to your words? Our values must change. Our priorities must change. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Back to the left just a little bit. Skip over Galatians. When our priorities must change, we, we start to think differently. We recognize that things that are unimportant, not urgent, are wasting time, and we start seeking to maximize opportunities. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 11. Paul, again, writing to a different church, says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and we hope that, I hope that it is plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. Catch what he's saying next. If we're out of our mind, you ever had somebody think you were crazy because you're a Christian? Stinking Jesus freaks. You're all nuts. It's real. You're just a big cult, you weirdos. Paul says, if we're out of our mind, if people say we're crazy, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, if it makes sense, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. The wise understand what matters and don't waste time on things that don't. You and I are going to have a lot of things to try to get our attention. A lot of things that seem really important. Even more that seem really urgent. Wisdom dictates that we begin to change our priorities and prioritize the things of God. We begin to change our values and see as most precious that which God sees as most precious.
The third contrast that Paul gives us here is eternal purpose versus temporary pursuits. Eternal purpose versus temporary pursuits. In other words, our goals must change. If our values change and our priorities change, now it's not just a matter of ordering the items on our agenda. That is crucial. But what we actually want out of life has to change if our identity is changed in Christ. I can no longer justify wanting the same things I wanted when I was blinded, when I was darkness, when I was dead in my sins. Now, being light in the Lord, I'm able to see completely differently. And as I change my values and priorities, the things I actually want out of life, my goals must change. Once we become light in the Lord, we begin to see reality. Our worldview changes. Our values and priorities change. And we begin to want different things. We used to want to please ourselves. Now we want to please the Lord. Like Isaiah, after seeing the glory of God and having his sins atoned for in Isaiah chapter 6, our encounter with the living God causes us to want nothing more than to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The deepest part of who we are no longer wants to chase after our own temporary pursuits, but instead, we long to fulfill God's purpose for us. Our natural flesh-driven goals are replaced with eternal godly goals. We cannot be satisfied with pleasure, wealth, physical health, or earthly honor, we begin aligning our goals with God's eternal purpose. We want to accomplish God's will instead of our own goals. Instead, in fact, God's will now becomes our goal. Right after the book of Ephesians is the book of Philippians. So just turn the page real quick and look at chapter 1. As Paul is writing to the Philippian church, he's wrestling, wrestling with his own goals. If you look at verse 20, uh, let's, let's back up. He's talking about rejoicing. He's in prison. And he's rejoicing even in the prison. He's even rejoicing because of it, because of what's happening. When people are, are preaching the gospel as charlatans and undermining Paul, he's like, man, I don't care as long as Jesus gets preached. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. What matters is, is the gospel going out. So then he says, uh, the back end of verse 18 and moving forward. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Notice, his personal goals have been set aside, and God's goals have now become his goals. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm no longer concerned about how this turns out. All I'm concerned about is whether God gets the glory from it. 
the verse that hopefully you know, 21. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. How can he say that? Because Paul is rooted in the reality Not the religion, but the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and He is alive. And if I am in Him, then I will be with Him. When I am absent from my body, I will be present with the Lord. And it is glorious and beautiful. And this world will be a pale, distant memory that just doesn't even matter. Because the glory that is passing here so far falls short of the glory yet to come. Man, when I get to leave this body and I get to be with Jesus, how much better for me. But it's not done. It's not just my goal to be with Jesus, but even heaven, even the goal of being with Christ He's setting aside because he knows that that's not God's will for him right now. God has a different goal. And ultimately, in the end, he will be with Christ. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 22, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. His goals have been superseded by God's eternal purpose and will. The wise commit themselves to pursuing God's eternal purpose over any earthly goals. The wise commit themselves to pursuing God's eternal purpose over any earthly goals he gives us one more contrast here in ephesians 5 in this section and he takes a couple of verses here to do this one the rest are are short but here we see in verses 18 to 20 the contrast of spirit-filled gratitude versus self-focused stupor Spirit-filled gratitude versus self-focused stupor. What he's saying here is that our focus must change. Our focus must change. We've gone from darkness to light. Our identity has changed. We're called to wise living in the midst of these evil days. Our worldview must change. The nature of our new identity leads us to watchful wisdom, not careless folly. Our values must change. And when our values change, 
We can't waste time on the things of this world. We, we set our minds above and we maximize our opportunities. Our priorities must change. No longer can we squander our lives on temporary pursuits. Rather, our deepest desire is to fulfill God's eternal purpose and our goals must change. But when our hearts are filled with the Holy Spirit, moving us to gratitude, we no longer have a place, we no longer have room for self-focused stupor. Our focus must change. The flesh is naturally self-focused. Everybody's that way. You were born a selfish pig. Understand it, embrace it, repent of it. Every child is selfish. From the, the moment they're born, all they want is what they want, right? How many of you have raised babies, right? And you know in the middle of the night, they don't care about you sleeping. You can explain to them, listen, sweetheart, I had a really rough day today. I'm just exhausted. Mommy really needs to sleep. And what the baby says is, feed me, change me, take care of me, 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 me. I don't care about you, mommy. Harsh, man. Babies are selfish. Again, stealing from Vodibachum. <laughs> it's not a little angel. It's a viper in a diaper. That's the reality of the human condition. Every single one of us at our root are selfish. And when we try to pretend that we're not and we clean ourselves up with any sort of a human behaviorist alternative, the problem remains that our root is still selfish. The flesh is naturally self-focused, but the believer isn't natural. The believer is supernatural. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We are all in Christ if we are believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a little bit different. When someone drives drunk, we call it driving under the influence, right? Because their cognitive faculties and their focus are impacted by the intoxicant in their system. There is something in them that is changing the way they think, right? It's changing the way they react. It's changing the things that they do. Likewise, when we let the Holy Spirit of God control us, it impacts our thinking, our reactions, our focus. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and Philippians 4, 4 through 8, describe what it looks like to trade the stupor of self-focus for the Spirit-filled life. Take a look at Galatians 5. We were there. Uh, I don't know if we were there or not. I just made that up. But just turn back a page or two. It's right before this. Ephesians, or Galatians chapter 5. We mentioned what Paul says in verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a period there, but as I'm reading that, it's like a screeching uh, needle scraping across a record. There's a hard stop here. This is the natural life. The self-focused life ends up in this type of thing. The fruitless deeds of darkness, the acts of the sinful nature. And if you are living as the pattern and definition of your life, according to this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let it sink in. That doesn't mean that every time you mess up and you blow it, that the work of Christ is somehow undone in your life. That would not say much about the work of Christ. But if you are comfortable living in a life that is not set apart for God, but is driven by your own fleshly desires and the pattern of this world, then you don't know Him. And His grace has not been applied to you by faith. You may have said the words, but if you're comfortable with sin, you're not there. But notice the contrast in verse 22. So I say in light of what he just said about the the deeds of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. If you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and has sealed you, guaranteeing that God will finish what He starts. Walk by the Spirit and and you won't... Excuse me. I'm sorry, I'm looking at 16. I was supposed to be looking at 22. I want to read this for you anyway, and then we'll jump to 22. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So that you're not to do whatever you want according to the flesh, according to the world, according to the devil. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Jump to 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast with the deeds of darkness, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, you may have patience in your Bible, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Not tried to suppress it, not tried to bind it back with religious activity, but put it to death. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Philippians is the book right after. And in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Notice, it doesn't say be happy. There's a difference. Happiness is a feeling that is produced by your circumstances. Rejoicing is a choice. It's an action to choose joy 
Rejoice in the Lord, not necessarily in your circumstances, but in the Lord, no matter what your circumstances are. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's important enough that he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. If you do these things, if you choose to rejoice in the Lord regardless of your circumstances, if rather than hanging on to it and focusing on yourself and focusing on your situation, you hand it over to Him, if you do this, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. This is the picture of one who has let go of self-focus. Now, how does that connect with the drunkenness that Paul points out. Don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness is a self-focused thing. Intoxication, he's here speaking of wine, but it applies to drugs, whatever it is that, that alters your mind. Very often we do that so that we can escape. We can escape our circumstances. We can escape the pain. We can escape the, the timidity that we might have, get some liquid courage, so to speak. All of these things are self-focused. And even before you put that intoxicant into your bloodstream, you're already in a stupor because you're intoxicated with yourself. When I focus on my shame and my guilt, that's really just another form of pride. I'm discounting God's grace and making it about me. Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35. This will be the last passage I have you look up. We want to wrap this up here, but if you go to the middle of your Bible, you probably find the Psalms, then go just past the Psalms. To Proverbs, a book that is entirely dedicated to wisdom, to living in a way that pleases God. Proverbs 23, starting with verse 29. He writes, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine. Who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. Your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like the one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, 
but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. Ten feet tall and bulletproof. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? This is a self-focused mentality. It sucks us in and it poisons us. The more we're focused on ourselves, our circumstances, our feelings, our pleasure, our pride or shame, even our sin, don't miss that. When we get overly focused on our sin, we're not focusing on Christ. When we're focused on Christ, not sinning will take care of itself. We cannot be focused on Christ and walking in darkness. When we're focused on those things, then the more we tend to seek escape, often through some kind of intoxication that lets us forget, or through our own attempts to control the situation, we want to control things. The more we focus on Christ and allow the Spirit to have His way with us, the more we become filled to overflowing with gratitude, even in difficulty. That gratitude spills over in praise and in worship that glorifies God and ministers to others. That's why Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, riotous living. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. When I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, it overflows in this praise and worship. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, he says, we glory even in our suffering, because in the suffering, God's working. He's doing something greater. So let's forget about ourselves and concentrate on him and worship Christ the Lord. The wise live lives of spirit-filled gratitude and avoid the foolishness of intoxication or of focusing on self. The first two verses of our passage today are a memory verse. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The wise do not live for temporary things but for God's eternal purpose contrast of our new identity in Christ and our old identity in the flesh must be manifest and clear in the way we approach our, da- our daily living. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the, your word today, as we close this service out with the song of commitment, remind us that It is foolishness to live for the temporary things of this world. Cause us to be wise, to seek your eternal purpose, that we might love whom you love, that we might prioritize what you prioritize. Lord, teach us to follow you better so that we can live wisely in these evil days. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.